This is the Daily Signal podcast for Wednesday, February 19th. I'm Jarrett Stepman. And I'm Kate Trinko. Today, we'll speak to Klon Kitchen, a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation who studies technology, about Huawei, the Chinese telecommunications company. Huawei's work with other nations and some of its work in the U.S. has serious potential ramifications. Klon has details on what you need to know and how the company is part of China's larger push to obtain useful data on citizens of other countries. Don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Now on to our top news. President Donald Trump has issued a presidential pardon to former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich, who began serving a 14-year prison sentence in 2012 for various corruption charges. Here's what Trump had to say on why via ABC News. There's a long time to go. Many people disagree with the sentence. He's a Democrat. He's not a Republican. Uh, It was a prosecution by the same people, Comey, Fitzpatrick, the same group, uh, very far from his children. Uh, They're growing older. They're going to high school now, and they rarely get to see their father outside of an orange uniform. I saw that, and I did commute his sentence. So he'll be able to go back home with his family after serving eight years in jail. That was a tremendously powerful, ridiculous sentence, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many others, yes. Blagojevich, who appeared on Trump's show Celebrity Apprentice, began serving as Illinois governor in 2003 and stayed in office until he was impeached and removed in 2009. Among other crimes, he was convicted of extorting a children's hospital and trying to sell former President Barack Obama's Senate seat. President Trump also gave pardons to a total of seven people on Tuesday. Among them was Bernard Carrick, the former New York Police Department commissioner, who was praised for his actions during 9-11. In 2010, Carrick was sentenced to four years of prison, convicted on tax fraud and lying. Since his conviction, he has focused on improving the lives of others, including as a passionate advocate for criminal justice and prisoner reentry reform, the White House writes. Former San Francisco 49ers owner Eddie DiBartolo was also pardoned. The White House wrote, In 1998, he was convicted for failing to report a felony regarding payment demanded for a riverboat casino license, and he was sentenced to two years probation. Mr. DiBartolo did not allow his conviction to define his life. He remained a generous philanthropist and passionate supporter of numerous charitable causes, including charter schools like the Brooks DiBartolo Collegiate High School and anti-gang violence initiatives. Former 49ers star Jerry Rice praised Trump via The Hill. You know, I take my hat off to Donald Trump for what he did. On Tuesday, President Trump floated the idea that he may file lawsuits in response to the conduct of former special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into his campaign's involvement with Russia in 2016. Trump tweeted, Everything having to do with this fraudulent investigation is badly tainted and, in my opinion, should be thrown out. The whole deal was a total scam. If I wasn't president, I'd be suing everyone all over the place. He then followed up with a second tweet. But maybe I still will. Witch hunt. Dealing with a slew of lawsuits related to alleged sexual abuse, the Boy Scouts organization is filing for bankruptcy. Boy Scouts president and CEO Roger Mosby said in a statement, 
The BSA cares deeply about all victims of abuse and sincerely apologizes to anyone who was harmed during their time in scouting. We are outraged that there have been times when individuals took advantage of our programs to harm innocent children. While we know nothing can undo the tragic abuse that victims suffered, we believe the Chapter 11 process, with the proposed trust structure, will provide equitable compensation to all victims while maintaining the BSA's important mission. USA Today reports that there are currently 275 lawsuits related to alleged abuse that the Boy Scouts are dealing with, and as many as 1,400 more such cases could be coming down the pipeline. USA Today also reports that the Boy Scouts claim 90% of the abuse took place at least three decades ago, prior to more intensive volunteer screening. A recent study by researchers at the University of North Carolina, highlighted by an article in The Atlantic, found that conservative students on campus have a very different experience than liberal ones, and that many students don't value free speech. Disparaging comments about conservatives were common, according to the study, and conservatives were much more likely to self-censor their view compared to liberal students. The study found that about a quarter of students think it's a good thing to shut down the speech of people they think are wrong, and a large minority say they won't engage socially with people who have different political perspectives. 92% of conservative students said they would be friends with a liberal, and only 3% they wouldn't have a liberal friend. Nearly a quarter of liberals said they wouldn't have a conservative friend. Well, a former San Francisco Giants player... Aubrey Huff is claiming that he's not invited to the 10-year World Series championship reunion over his support for Donald Trump. In a statement on Twitter, Huff says the Giants CEO, Larry Baer, called him up and said he wouldn't be invited because of his political views and Twitter posts. We live in a country that is under attack. Society is desperately trying to take away our First Amendment, our freedom of speech, and our freedom of political association, Huff wrote. He also wrote... To the Giants board members who seem to think every Giants fan is a liberal, they aren't. I have had thousands of diehard Giants fans reach out to me on my social media platforms to support me. In a statement to The Athletic, the Giants highlighted Huff's tweets as the reason why he wasn't invited, saying they were unacceptable. A reporter for The Athletic, Andrew Baggerly, tweeted, Gonna say this once and log off. Giants officials have made it clear to me they are not banning Aubrey Huff because they dislike or disagree with his political views. They believe he has crossed the line when it comes to misogyny, vulgarity, and common decency. Next up, we'll have an interview with Kalon Kitchen about Huawei. Americans have almost entirely forgotten their history. That's right. And if we want to keep our republic, this needs to change. I'm Jarrett Stepman. And I'm Fred Lucas. We host The Right Side of History a podcast dedicated to restoring informed patriotism and busting the negative narratives about America's past. Hollywood, the media, and academia have failed a generation. We're here to set the record straight on the ideas and people who've made this country great. Subscribe to The Right Side of History on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher today. Joining us today is Klon Kitchen, a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation, whose work focuses on technology. Klon, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So let's talk about Huawei. First of all, we're going to go very basic here. It's a Chinese telecommunications company. What service or goods does it actually provide? So it's a one of the things that makes Huawei powerful is that it's a full service telecommunications company. So they make hardware. So they make phones. Uh, they make software, so operating systems uh, for mobile devices and the like. 
But most importantly, uh, in the current events, is that they build network infrastructure. So uh, the the conversation right now is centered around what's called fifth generation wireless networks. So that's five G. And uh, they're actually the only company uh, on the planet who can, by themselves, develop, deploy, and manage a 5G network all within itself, all unilaterally. And why are they the only company that can do that? You would think that there'd be others interested in that space. Well, there are plenty of people who do parts of it, but the the short answer is is that um, that's the way the market has evolved in the sense that uh, there are a lot of American companies – uh, who can do parts of that, some of the hardware, some of the software, but not all of it. The two key rivals uh, to Huawei uh, on 5G are Nokia and Ericsson. Um, but a lot of markets around the world have found it more advantageous and efficient to outsource a lot of the development to China. Now, one of the reasons why Huawei is able to do it at a significant reduction in price is because as a company, they're heavily subsidized by the Chinese government. So uh, in Europe, for example, a typical Huawei bid is about a third of the cost of anyone else. And that's one of the reasons why it's so attractive to a lot of governments. Um, But what those governments should be asking themselves is, well, if profit's not their motive, what is? How are they able to keep their prices so low? And the answer to that question is uh, the Chinese government is, um, is supporting them. So let's talk about the relationship between the Chinese government and Huawei. You've written in the past about how you know, we from the United States view companies and the government as very separate, but it's not really that way in China. So can you explain that? Yeah, of course. So uh, it's exactly as you said. So uh, the Chinese in, – in China, there is a, a deliberate philosophy that they call uh, military civil fusion. And what that means is, is that um, – by law and by practice, the government and industry work cooperatively together to further the state's aims. So in the case of Huawei, part of what that looks like is um, the Chinese government will say, uh, Huawei, we will use our state mechanisms and capabilities to steal intellectual property, and then we will feed that information to you so that you can uh, innovate and, and, and kind of build your capacity. We'll also – the government will say – Uh, will also subsidize you so that you can expand your market presence by underbidding everybody. But the thing you have to do for us then is that as you expand, you now have to operate as an extension of our intelligence service. So as you grow, that's good for you, but it's going to be good for us too because you're going to be stealing a lot of information that's on your networks and we're as the state going to be using that. So it's this symbiotic relationship that characterizes much of the way China does business in general. Does Huawei have any presence in the United States right now? It does. So it currently has a relatively small presence within local telecommunications companies, but not nationally. So the the federal government has made a decision that it is not going to allow Huawei to participate in its fifth generation wireless networks. There are active steps being taken by Congress right now to help subsidize or at least defer the costs of ripping and replacing Huawei equipment in some of the local telecommunications networks, precisely because they've been judged to be a national security threat. So is the long-term goal that all of Huawei's presence will be removed from the United States? Absolutely. And is there a timeline for that? Uh, Not an explicit one, but people are moving quickly. 
So last week, the U.S. government announced new charges against Huawei, specifically accusing it of stealing trade secrets and not following the sanctions that we have on Iran and North Korea. What's going on there? Well, so Huawei is actually kind of renowned for uh, its theft of intellectual property. So, so much to that point that Huawei actually gave company bonuses to individuals who stole intellectual property. Wow. Uh, They have been brought up on charges of IP theft in multiple jurisdictions uh, inside and outside the United States uh, and convicted on multiple ones as well. So this is, this is a known practice. Um, It's not that uncommon, honestly, within Chinese companies writ large, um, but Huawei has taken that to just a, an art form and have really built their business off of it. The most recent charges are in continuation of that. Uh, it's a, it's another example of the United States um, publicly kind of turning the screw on the company, but also demonstrating to some of our Western allies like the United Kingdom, France, and Germany that they're flirting with Huawei or their active choice to include them in their, their networks is going to be a problem for them. And this is a, another demonstration of that. So also last week, some government officials expressed concern about the level of access Huawei has. Robert O'Brien, of course, the national security advisor, said, per the Wall Street Journal, we have evidence that Huawei has the capability secretly to access sensitive and personal information in systems it maintains and sells around the world. What do we know about that? Yeah. So what what, uh, NSA O'Brien is saying there is what uh, he's been saying privately uh, to other government officials, uh, partners and allies for, for quite some time. And that is that, hey, listen, um, our intelligence service has a very deep understanding of Huawei's special access to their networks. They've built in a capability to see and to um, kind of gather all data that's coming across those networks. And um, he's now saying that publicly because – Uh, Some of our partners and allies, as I've already mentioned, have chosen to use Huawei, and this is our mechanism for making public some of our concerns. Now, um, one of the things about the 5G conversation up until this point is that the conversation is largely centered around the notion of cybersecurity. And uh, some governments have said, no, no, we think we can mitigate that risk. But one of O'Brien's key points in the, the announcement of all this is that even if Huawei is able to secure their networks theoretically, you still have the underlying reality of how the Chinese government operates and the laws under which they operate in in China. Specifically, that the way they understand uh, information is if information is on a Chinese company's servers or network, even if it's your information or my information, Beijing considers that Chinese information, and they therefore have access to it. And by law, Huawei has to provide it to them. They can't say no when asked. And so uh, the point that O'Brien and and others are making now publicly is that even if you fill the security gaps in the network, which is a tall order, but even if you do that, you still have the underlying legal responsibility that these companies have to the Beijing government to provide any and all information when asked. So just to boil this down and make sure I understand you correctly, are you saying in a nation that uses Huawei for its 5G, potentially if Beijing wanted, they would have access to all the phone conversations that happened? Well, they would have all – they would have access to the data. Now, it's unclear as to what – how much of the content of, a, of, of communications they'd be able to get. A good portion of that's going to be encrypted. And we're just not clear, frankly, on what China's capability is in terms of decrypting some of that. Um, it's likely that they wouldn't be able to get all of the details, 
but you don't need content. You don't need conversation content to be really scary. I mean, metadata, which would be something they absolutely would collect. You can do a lot with that in terms of predicting where people are going to be. You start building networks in terms of like these two phones are always co-located together. And at nights when norm- people are normally sleeping, they reside at this residence. So I don't have to know the names, but I can start building network profiles on individuals and what their habits are and proof of life and that kind of thing. So they would know where your phone was, you're saying, at all times potentially. Not only that, but they would likely know where you live, where you work, how you often get there, who you interconnect with, who do you call the most frequently – all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I'm not interested in anyone knowing that about me. <laughs> you wrote a few weeks ago that Britain was making a huge mistake by allowing Huawei to build a 5G network there. Do you think there's any chance Britain will reverse that decision? And why do you think they would be open to this? So they <clears throat> they still have time. And I, I do believe that there are some members of parliament who are going to make a, uh, a strong push to help the Johnson government reconsider I want to be clear, and I, and I said this in the paper, that what we're asking Britain and other nations to do is no small thing. It, it could be potentially costly in terms of foregoing some of the near-term benefits of 5G by delaying its deployment by not allowing Huawei to do it. But all of that can be managed. But what they can't do is catastrophically turn themselves over to what is an existential challenger in the international geopolitical world, right? So we know what China's intents are. They've made it very clear. And um, the reason that um, the Johnson government gives for not making what I would say is the right choice up until this point is we're unwilling to forego the very real economic benefits of, of deploying 5G as soon as possible. So you mentioned that other European countries have also been interested in Huawei, again, presumably because of the economic benefits In what countries does Huawei have a presence now in Europe, and what consequences do you foresee from that? In one sense, they're all over the place in Europe and honestly in Southeast Asia and elsewhere. They're poised to have as much as 50% of the global 5G marketplace, which is massive. One of the key aspects of, of this challenge with Huawei is that 5G is about more than fast phones. 5G is going to be the central nervous system to the new economy. And so when, when, when governments are making a decision about 5G, they're making a decision that really does have massive consequences. And a lot of politicians are going to be very tempted, especially politicians in European countries where they're bleeding legitimacy because they're not delivering on kind of cradle-to-grave promises of entitlements. They're, they're looking for any and every opportunity to kind of deliver And 5G is one of the most potent opportunities that they're going to have. And so they're making short-term trades for, you know, kind of economic deliverables against long-term national security. They're giving up sovereignty for resources. So let's take a step back. You've mentioned how great 5G will be. What about it makes it so great? How is it really going to change things? The biggest constraint on kind of technological innovation at at the network level hasn't been good ideas. It's been physics. So if you imagine a, a garden hose... You can only put so much water through a garden hose, right? Well, imagine water is data. You can only put so much data through a 4G network, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so 5G expands the garden hose to a fire hose. So we are – it is the single largest um, – what's called data throughput. Okay. It's, it's the single largest data throughput gain between generations that we've ever had. So the jump from 4G to 5G will be a bigger jump than any previous generational jump that we've had. 
So what does that mean concretely? Because I'm thinking yep. as a consumer, I can already stream everything. My mm-hmm. calls don't drop. Why do I care if it's this much better? Yeah, it's great. So all of the dreams that we've had about the Internet of Things and all the connectedness, we haven't been able to really realize that because we didn't have the data pipes to support it. Now we're going to. What does that mean? Okay. So take an idea like Uber. Before 4G, we couldn't have Uber. We couldn't support the data throughput that would allow real-time tracking of both you and a car. We just couldn't do it. Then we got 4G. All of a sudden, we've opened up an entire ride-sharing economy, right? We didn't think about Uber when we pulled 4G. We realized that after the fact. So some of the implications of 5G, we, we're not even thinking about yet because we don't even know what it means to operate an environment where we can do that type of data throughput. That's so interesting. I, I look forward to the next Uber. Yeah. So should the U.S. do anything further regarding Huawei? And if so, what? I think we should turn every screw we have. I think we should leverage every element of national power to help partners and allies understand um, China's intentions and how they use their domestic companies to um, to realize those intentions. Uh, I think we should continue to publicly demonstrate all of the risks associated with Huawei. I think you're going to see a lot more of that. So I think the statement that O'Brien made here recently, I think the DOJ charges, I think you're going to see just an ongoing torrent of that. I also think you're going to see out of the cybersecurity research community, I think you're going to see a lot of vulnerabilities in Huawei equipment and capabilities um, being discovered out of that community and made publicly known and is kind of a public campaign to partners and allies like, look, you cannot absorb this risk. So what do you think China's long-term game here is? Do they just want information for the sake of having information and figure it might be useful or are there particular information goals they have? Yeah. So one, China's like every country in the history of the world. They want to amass and wield influence for their own ends. I don't begrudge them that. That's, that's a completely coherent way to operate in, in our international system. Um, I think they've also rightly concluded that um, leading in key tech sectors, one of which being telecommunications, will be essential for amassing and wielding that influence in the future. I think that's right. We in the United States have certainly experienced that. Um, So as they do that, I think they have two goals. The primary goal, I think, initially is actually um, internal domestic security and stability of their government. So if you look at how they're employing this technology and this data primarily, it's about internal uh, management of, of the, their system and of, you know, of the regime. Um, the second goal is that larger intention of being a counterbalance geopolitically to the United States and to any other would-be challengers, particularly within their region. So to take another step back, do you think there's other Chinese companies that we may or may not be interacting with right now that have a similar relationship between the Chinese government as Huawei does? In other words, is China using other businesses in a similar way? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Well, number one, any Chinese business is going to be subject to the same requirements and laws as I'm describing as Huawei. So no one is immune from it. But two, uh, this is the same reason why we've had conversations about ZTE uh, and other technology companies. The single largest individual messaging app is uh, WeChat. Massive. Billions of people on WeChat and total integration with banking and everything else. Completely owned by the Chinese government in terms of their ability to kind of see into it and, and know what's going on there. Um, this relationship between industry and government has been a core part of why people have raised concerns about the presence of TikTok, the social media app here in the United States. 
Um, there's a lot of information, again, from metadata that can be delivered. And just because you know you or I as American citizens are using it here in the United States, again, Chinese company, they see it as Chinese data. It goes back. And so, yes, I mean, essentially any technology company should be understood as at least a potential extension of the Chinese espionage enterprise. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. Please be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. And please leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts to give us any feedback. We'll see you again tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, the Leah Rampersad, and Mark Guiney. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.